It's not what you said. It's how you said it. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? It's not what you said. It's how you said it. In Luke chapter 1, as we saw last week, here is Zacharias, a priest of God, serving in the temple, a righteous man, the scripture tells us, who believed in God, knew God, and yet when he's presented with the angel of the Lord in the holy temple, he asked the question, how will I know for certain that these things will come to pass? Perhaps the mundaneness of his belief in God prevented him from being able to see how these things would be. That his son, John, would be the messianic prophet announcing that the time of the Messiah was now there. Just a few verses later, we see Mary in her own encounter with that very same angel asking a very similar question, yet the response is different. This morning, I want us to think about the conversation that Mary has with Gabriel as he tells her of what her task in life will be. I want us to think about the How the power of God can work in us as the members of Christ. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning to Luke chapter 1. And as you turn to Luke chapter 1, I, I want you to be thinking about what it would be like to be Mary. Archaeologists, biblical scholars, scholars of the first century tell us that it was customary in the first century for girls to marry when they were 13 or 14. Usually they were marrying men in their 30s or men significantly older than they were. And so as we read this story, keep in mind that Mary is probably, if she fits the custom of the day, a girl in her early teens. And she has this encounter with Gabriel. Notice what the text says as we look here in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Excuse me, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that is the sixth month after Gabriel has gone to, John the or gone to Zacharias to tell him about John the Baptist being born. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of my Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As we look at this story, there are some interesting parallels or some interesting comparison and contrast or, uh, with what happened to Zacharias. Notice that in the story of Zacharias, he is in the temple. He is serving in the holy place. He's burning incense. And the angel appears there before him, a miraculous appearing of the angel. In Mary's account, the text says the angel was sent to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, and he goes in to where Mary's at. So we don't know if that's a miraculous appearing or if Gabriel just walks in as any man would and wherever it was that Mary was standing. But with Zacharias, we know this was a gotcha moment. This is a miraculous moment. With Mary, it's not so clear as to how that might appear. But she hears the man, she hears the angel speak to her by calling her most favored one. When was the last time you walked into someone that you've never met before? and said, most favored one. Imagine someone coming into you and speaking to you that way. Maybe you would have the same fear that evidently Mary had, like, what is, who is this guy? And what's he after? Right? And so here's Mary, and she receives this message. But what I want you to think about is that question that she asks Gabriel. She looks at Gabriel as he tells her all these things that are going to happen. He tells Mary, look, your son is going to sit on David's throne. The angel tells Mary, your son is the Messiah. The child that's going to be born to you is the Son of God. Would that be an amazing thing to hear? But as he talks to Mary, Mary asks him a question. And Mary says to him, How can this be, verse 34, since I am a virgin? In the Greek text, literally what she asks is, How can this be, since I've never known a man? She doesn't use the term virgin. Now elsewhere, that term is used, but here she uses the euphemism. I've never known a man. How can this be? Compare that to what Zacharias has asked. Zacharias asks the question, how can I know for certain this is going to happen? Uh, you're in the holy place and an angel miraculously appeared to you. I think you can trust what he's saying. For Mary, as a 12, 13, or 14-year-old, maybe 15-year-old girl, asks the question somewhat differently. She asks, how can this be? And the, the word how that she uses is often used as an exclamation of amazement. 
So she's not asking maybe in the same way that Zacharias is. Zacharias seems to be asking almost with skepticism. How can I know for certain that's going to happen? But she's amazed at what she's hearing. She says, how can this be? I've never known a man. Amazed at what the angel has told her. Amazed that this is going to happen. And she's seemingly, truly curious. Truly intrigued. How, I, don't, I can't put these pieces together. How is this going to happen? Not in a doubtful way, apparently. As in, God can't do this. But in a truly inquisitive way that an pre, pre, uh, adolescent mind wants to know, how is this going to happen? This doesn't add up to me. But I want you to look at what the angel says in response to her question. Verse 35, then the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the, ho the ch Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now that's the first part of his response. We're going to continue in just a second. But I want you to think about the language that he uses. Now I want you to realize that there are some people, some commentators, some skeptics of the Bible, some profane artists who look at that phrase overshadow and they imagine in their minds and they portray in their minds and they add to the text that this phrase overshadow almost has some sort of intimate embrace. That there is a physical action that takes place so that she conceives. You understand what I'm saying? But that's not what that word means. That's translated overshadow. But it is a significant phrase as we look at it in the text. And we understand what the angel is saying to Mary. Never, in secular use as far as we know, contemporary with this writing, or even before and even after, nor in any religious writings that we know of, does the word overshadow ever act as a euphemism for a physical act? Understand what I'm saying? But it is used to talk about the power of God and the protection of God. In the New Testament, it's used five times. This is one of them. Three of the times, it is a parallel of when Jesus appears transfigured with Moses and Elijah. Notice, for instance, Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. And some translations translate this a little bit differently, but I like the way the New American Standard translates it. Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. Notice the transfiguration story. I always like it when I say Mark and I turn to Acts. Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. Notice this is up on the Transfiguration Mountain. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. There's the same word that the angel uses to talk about God's power coming on Mary. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, 
And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Same word is used in Luke's account and Matthew's account of the transfiguration. So there's Jesus up on the mountain. His uh, three closest apostles, Peter, James, and John, are with him. And they see Jesus transfigured. And all of a sudden, a cloud envelops them, overshadows them. And out of the cloud comes a voice saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. As if to offer God's protection, God's cover, God's presence. Not in any euphemistic way but in a way of indicating God's presence. Now with that in the back of your mind, or with that on your mind, I want you to think about a couple of passages from the Old Testament. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35. And with these passages, I want you to remember that the Old Testament was, was written in Hebrew, original Hebrew, or ancient Hebrew. But around 200 B.C., Jewish Greek-speaking individuals who knew the Hebrew scriptures or knew the Hebrew language translated the Old Testament into Greek. And they used the same word in a couple different places to talk about God's power coming upon the people. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence, God's power coming upon Moses, coming upon the tabernacle, as if to say, I'm in the tabernacle for the first time. My presence is here. When we turn over to Numbers chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, we see a similar occurrence. Numbers chapter 9 and verse 18. This is talking about the people of God wandering in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 9, verse 18, At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Look at verse 22. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained encamped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. The overshadowing of the cloud indicated the presence and the protection that God offered to his people at unique times. As we look in other places in the Old Testament, we see this idea of God's presence, God's protection overshadowing his people. Although he doesn't use the same Greek word in the Septuagint to describe these. Notice, for instance, Psalm chapter 90 and verse 4. Psalm chapter 90 and verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood, and in the morning they are like a grass which sprouts. I always like when I write the wrong verse down. 91 verse 4. Psalm 91 verse 4. 
He will cover you with his pinions, or his feathers, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. The idea of God covering his people, offering them protection. Notice again Psalm 139 and verse 8. Psalm 139 and verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I may make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the lightness around me will be night. Even the darkness in night is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. These passages talk about the presence of God and that presence of God protecting his people. And the idea of overshadowing, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the idea of God's presence, God being with someone and protecting them. And so when we come back to Luke chapter 1, the angel is talking to Mary. And he says, look, these things are going to happen to you. She says, how is this going to be? He's talking about the power of God and the presence of God and the protection that that's going to offer to Mary. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Not a euphemism, but a way of saying God's presence is going to be with you and you're going to have protection. Notice what he says as he continues in verse 36. He says, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. God's not saying, and the angel is not saying, that God gets around. What he's saying is, God made it happen for Elizabeth. God can make it happen for you, even if you haven't. Known a man. And then he brings home his overall statement in verse 37 For nothing will be impossible with God. His overall theme is not look what God's going to do by embracing you, but God's power is able to make this happen. And you can know it's going to happen. And as it happens, and as you carry this child, and as you care for this child, I want you to know that God's power is with you. His presence is with you. He's going to take care of you. Compare Matthew's account of what happens with Mary. Matthew chapter 1. And see how God is with Mary. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, notice that, that is a euphemism, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. In the Greek text, that's not saying that there is a conception. 
Literally in the Greek text it says that the child was to be begotten, that was to be begotten, was by or from the Holy Spirit. It does not use the word conceived. The child was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, was not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. There's that phrase again. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And there, Matthew uses the Greek word that means virgin. That's translated virgin. So after she's with child, the angel says, this is from God. But he still describes her as being a virgin. The power of God is making this happen. Not through some Hollywood-created scene of a God that mixes with humanity. Understand what I'm saying? But the power of the story, the point of the story, the point of this lesson as we, as we come back to Luke chapter 1 is that God is telling Mary God is able to do all things. Nothing is impossible with God. He says, even your relative who was barren and in her old age, beyond childbearing years, is with child. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. A different outcome than that of Zacharias. You see, Zacharias asked uh, in almost disbelief, How can I know for certain that these things are going to be? But Mary says, May it be done as you say. A completely different disposition. That's not to take anything away from Zacharias, whom the Bible describes as a righteous man, a blameless man. But Mary says, so let it be. She believed the voice, the message of the angel. God is powerful, and God can make it happen. There are times in our lives when we find ourselves in impossible situations and we tell ourselves, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how we're going to achieve this. And we forget that God is all-powerful. We forget that nothing is impossible for God. Think about those who live in this world and they are surrounded by sin. And their lives are full of sin. And they tell themselves, nobody could love me. Nobody will care for me. 
and in their minds they have built up every dirty, every wrong, every sinful deed that they have done in their lives, and they have destroyed their self-image. Have you met anybody like that? I've sat across from people before who tell themselves there's no way that a God could really love me that much. But nothing is impossible for God. Sometimes we look at people around us and we see that their lives are a mess. And it's easy for us to look at them and dismiss them and say, there is no way that that person is going to become a Christian. There's no way that that person is going to change his life or her life. And it's easy for us to forgive up, to give up on that person and to say, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm not going to reach out to them. But you see, nothing is impossible for God. Sometimes we might look at a new church plant, 25 folks or so, and it's hard for us to envision what God can do with us. But we need to remember that nothing is impossible with God. As we think about our task, as we think about our work, sometimes it seems so tremendous, so overwhelming. And we tell ourselves, I can't do this. I can't get this done. There's no way. The burden is too great. The, the, the burden is too heavy. The, the, the task is too enormous. Nothing is impossible with God. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages. The passage begins with Paul spilling over from chapter 1, talking about God working in the church or working through us and the attitude that we ought to have. And so the chapter begins with Paul reminding this church at Philippi. Out of all the things that they had shared with Paul in his work, and it says, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul says, church at Philippi, you need to understand that as a body of Christians, you need to be intent on one purpose purpose. You need to be going after it. You need to be working together. And the way that you do that is being humble in mind, humble in spirit, not putting yourselves above others in the church. And he, he says, remember Christ and how selfless Christ was so that we could have life. He says, look what God has done with Christ. But then he says in verse 12, so then, my beloved brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So often people read that verse and say, oh, that's Paul talking about how God works in me. No, it's not. That's how God works in the church. God's ta Paul's talking about the context of the church at Philippi working to accomplish God's work. And Paul looks at that church at Philippi, and he says, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you. Glory. God works in the church. And he says he works in the church to accomplish his work and his will. And sometimes we forget that God's able to accomplish things, but you see, God is working in us as a church. Now, by the way, I don't think it's wrong to understand that God works in you as an individual as well. And I think in the context, he's talking specifically about God working in the church at Philippi. But you see, he says, God works in you. God's able to do things with you, church at Philippi. And as we think about the church at Benrick, we need to understand that God is able to do great things with us. He's working in us to do his work and to do his will. When you get in your car and you drive to your job, or you get in your car and you drive to wherever it is you're driving, and you're interacting with people in different places, whether it's at, jo at a job or at a school or, or in the community or, or whatever it is that you do. And you encounter those moments when you think, it is too big, the task is too enormous, it's, it's too heavy, I, I can't do it. I want you to remember what that angel tells Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. And I want you to think about what the angel had just told her. You're going to have a son. I've never known a man. How's that going to happen? You're going to have a son. But you're not going to have just any son. You're going to have the Son of God. You're going to have the Messiah. He's going to sit on David's throne which means the kingdom of God is going to be established and built up. And all of it's going to happen because of this one child that you have. It's not to say she doesn't have other children, but through this one child, all of this is going to happen. Do you understand what the angel has just told her? Not just that she was going to have a child, but she was going to have a child through home, through whom the kingdom of God was going to be established. One person. And from that person, the kingdom that was never going to be destroyed or be done away with is going to be established and flourish forever. Because nothing is impossible with God. 
and as we think about being God's church today and being a part of that kingdom, we need to understand that nothing is impossible with God. God can do awesome things with us as a church and with us as individuals. When you leave this room this morning, you walk through that door and you go out and do whatever it is that you do during the course of the week, I want you to think about and have in the back of your mind, God can do impossible things with me. And I need to trust Him. And I need to look for those ways in which God is going to use me. And not doubt Him. And not think I can't do it. And certainly not think I'm not going to do it. But let God use you. And find those ways to let him lead you. If all of us do those things and have that attitude, it won't be too long before we're looking for the next space. Not because we're looking for the next space but because we're looking for souls that don't know Jesus. And we want them to come to know Christ and know the power of the Savior in their lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you need the prayers of the church to help you be encouraged in your daily life. Maybe you need the prayers of the church to help you realize the power of God to work in you and to work in this congregation. Whatever your need, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.